This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, a black scholar says blacks will remain a subservient people if they continue making requests rather than demands of power. And we'll take a look at a state where whites, Latinos, Latinas, and indigenous people are all acknowledged and celebrated, but black people are erased from history. But first, the state of Louisiana incarcerates more of its citizens per capita than any other place in the world, most of whom are black. That black prison majority is now mortally endangered by the coronavirus epidemic. The Black is Back Coalition held a national teleconference featuring two activists battling to free Louisiana's prisoners from the COVID-19 death trap. Belinda Parker Brown spoke first. She's head of Louisiana United International. Jim Crowism is alive and well here in the state of Louisiana. Institutional racism is alive and well here in the state of Louisiana. And you know, we had the, the war on drugs and Louisiana took the lead and became the highlight over every other country that massively incarcerated people more than anywhere else in the world with the war on drugs. Then after that, we had Katrina. Katrina told the story while the whole world was watching us here in Louisiana, how bad we were being treated as black people. Now we got the COVID-19 and the coronavirus is a death sentence on black people here in the state of Louisiana. And I want the world to know right now, people, we need help. And that is our cry. That is our call. And I want people to know that we can't do this by ourselves. Now, to let you know, because I take this personal, when people are being done wrong, we can no longer stand on the sidelines and watch and be silent about what's going on. And I believe that when we begin to tell our stories, the real truth about what's really going on here in Louisiana, we want action. We want action, people. It's time for action. In the devastating situation that we're in right now facing this coronavirus, in our prisons and jails, it is horrific. And when we hear stories like people are dying inside of these jails because there is a lack of any type of administrative remedies, they are covering up the real truth. We just had a parent, a wife called me and said that her husband died in the prison and she was not even contacted. They did not even notify her and they then buried him on the prison grounds without her even having the opportunity to know about the death of her husband. We got jails packed, people packed inside of these hellhole jails like sardines on top of each other. And there is no way that they can practice social distancing. There is no way possible that they can get the proper medical treatment and attention that they need because they're sick. We just had a situation where the warden died from the COVID-19. The 
medical director have died from the COVID-19. In one of the facilities, the whole kitchen trustee staff was infected with the COVID-19. Now, the inmates that are in the jail are striking because they're afraid to eat the food because it was contaminated. This is serious, people, and we need help here in Louisiana. And when we look at how bad people are being treated when it comes to the disparity, people are dying, Black people are dying in the hospitals of the COVID-19 virus. And we have made a call to the governor and we want the people to know that our leadership is a disgrace here in the state of Louisiana. It's blatant disregard, a bunch of cover-up and lies that are happening here. And that's the reason why we're saying that enough is enough and it's time for us to act. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Zena. Crenshaw Logo. Yes, thank you so much, Uhuru. My presentation, I want to emphasize points that push back against the depiction of our challenge as just a difference of opinion. What Louisiana United is calling for is not just our opinion versus the opinion of the establishment. Our fight against the colonial virus and the death chambers that it has turned the Louisiana detention centers and the jails and prisons into is that fight is based on fact and is based on law. So unreliable is a word that really should stick in our heads. The government reports on what is happening in Louisiana and their detention centers and jails and prisons are inconsistent with what people have confined in those facilities are telling their family members as Ms. Melinda indicated. So at this point, the government reports are unreliable and we have reason to believe that everyone incarcerated in the state of Louisiana is at risk of dying of COVID-19 infections. And that means thousands of Black people may get sick or die in captivity. It just amazes me that with Blacks comprising 33% of the population for the state of Louisiana, that constitutes 67% of their prison population. So we're talking about, as Chairman O'Malley says, this is gonna hit our community hard, harder than everybody as this kind of stuff always does. The US Constitution and international human rights treaties that are part of America's federal law have a lot of fancy ways of, of making this point. And the point is simply that the punishment should fit the crime. Louisiana officials are talking public safety, just like you're hearing officials across the country, they're talking public safety. But when you start that conversation outside the parameters, outside of keeping the balance between the crime and punishment in proportion, and you start speculating what people might do if we release them in crime waves and infecting the community, when you start getting outside of a consideration of the punishment fitting the crime, that's when those kind of dynamics, that's flirting with genocide because we are presumed innocent and nobody should be held confined on the basis of what he or she might do. Mm -hmm. This is not an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Governors and wardens are not empowered to choose one life versus another. 
you know, to decide that the good people on the outside deserve to be spared of these, you know, rascals that they got hauled up in these prisons and jails. They don't get that choice. You have to tune in to Gray's Anatomy for those kind of decisions as to who's worth sparing, who's worth saving. In the context of an epidemic or a pandemic, what our governments, what Louisiana's executive branch, what their comparison has to be limited to is between the crime that people have been accused of, have been charged with, the circumstances of those accusations, whether they've been determined guilty, their record of behavior while confined, you compare that information to the punishment. And at this point, the punishment may include exposure to a deadly virus. That's the only comparison that our government should be making. Anything beyond that is a violation of our federal law, which includes international human rights treaties. When the governors and the wardens and the community, when we look at what someone is accused of or what they're convicted of, in the other circumstances, like, you know, how long ago was it? Did they, did they plead actual innocence at trial? Did they have other affirmative defenses? How old are they? What's their record? Be, how they behave since they've been incarcerated? When you look at those facts alone and you determine that the price to pay is too high, the price of being exposed to having an avoidable exposure to the coronavirus then that person should be released under appropriate terms. That's the end of it. We have had the first reported prisoner in Louisiana to die was someone who was incarcerated because of a technical parole violation. And I've never been a criminal practitioner, but I've worked with people who have dealt with the abuse of parolees and that people, they finally get back to their family, they get a job, and then they 15 minutes late for a parole meeting, and they actually end up getting put back in jail. How are you going to maintain your family? How are you going to maintain a good relationship with your children, your spouse, when you are getting put back in jail because you were 15 minutes late for a parole meeting? And how are you going to keep a job? But this is what happens. And then who is the first person who gets reported as having died of the coronavirus while incarcerated in the state of Louisiana, but a, a young man who was only in jail for a technical parole violation? But again, the conversation across the country is we want to look at public safety. The attorney general for the state of Louisiana said, oh, we're going to have a crime wave. I'm going to push back on Governor Edwards if he starts mass releasing from the prison because they want to protect the so-called law abiding people from these rascals. and, And that is the beginning of genocide. What we have now are people confined because the tough on crime folks don't want them released. And not a single branch of U.S. government, I'm telling you, is going to upset that apple cart unless we put some serious pressure on these institutions. We've got to be a force to be reckoned with. And thank goodness that's the Louisiana United International tagline. LUI is part of a a campaign that I helped manage called Optin USA. And the basic complaint that we have is that the legal system has been weaponized against America's legal system, has been weaponized against Black people and anybody else they want to take down. We've got a lot of support from the United Nations, believe it or not. It's just amazing because we are a small operation. But the UN Human Rights Committee encouraged the Trump administration to meet with us 
a delegation of Optin U.S. supporters, which include LUI. A human rights committee encouraged the Trump administration to meet with us well before we had heard of the coronavirus. We need our group, one of our calls to action is that we need to press the Trump administration for that meeting because we need to talk about what the problem is with the legal system. People should be able to go into court and get orders to be released in light of medical conditions. None of that's working and it's not even working for the so-called big lawyers. Genocide is a crime against humanity. I'm sure we all know that. And we could, as individuals or any of our groups, could take U.S. officials to the International Criminal Court for how they're handling this pandemic. But guess what? The United States is not a member of that court. So another thing we're going to be asking you to press for is to get Congress to ratify the treaty that will allow the U.S. to be a a member of the uh, International Criminal Court so we can get some accountability. That's something that we could do on our own. We won't need our governor to do that. And as Ms. Belinda indicated, we want to push the governor to meet with her and whoever else she designates to join her from LUI. If I'm not mistaken, LUI was the first organization to write the governor and talk in terms of evacuating evacuating these prisoners. There are some people that it's a no-brainer that they should not be in harm's way. And instead, they decided they wanted to go through this red tape. We're looking at it. And so now we need to press Governor Edwards to have that meeting with LUI. Next Tuesday, we're going to have a press conference. You're going to be directed to LUI's position statement, and that's a detailed explanation of the legal basis of everything we're talking about today and what we're asking you to do. Again, this is not just our opinion. We're not just talking about the morality of the situation. We're talking about these people's legal obligations, and the sooner we get it articulated, the sooner we can hold them accountable for those standards. And at this point, They can ignore us all they want, but that is the foundation of a crime against humanity because they have been informed that the building is on fire and they stopping you at the door asking you how many times have you done something or did you make your bed this morning and all these different questions trying to decide whether you should get out of a burning building. That was Dr. Zena Crenshaw-Logel speaking from New Orleans. It has long been fashionable in some black circles to speak of all the racial progress that has been made. But Professor Anthony Farley of Boston College Law School has written a paper that maintains the system of slavery is still with us in the United States and that black politics often amounts to nothing but perfecting slavery. We've come to like the spectacle of black pathology. Right, of looking over the fields and hearing us sing those slave spirituals made white people feel better about themselves back in the day. Looking at us behind bars makes that sort of white people feel good about himself or herself today. And imagining that the blacks behind bars deserve to be there, and that the entire group has something wrong with it, also gives people a thrill, a kind of feeling of pleasure. And that's a product every bit as valuable as the cotton we used to pick or the coal we used to dig in mines or the factory work that slaves were often uh, charged, tasked with uh, performing. 
Black folks put a lot of stock in education. You wrote, we begin with an education in our hierarchies. You seem to be saying that education is just a process in which people become acclimated to some people being higher than others. I think that can happen. I want to differentiate, if I can, between schooling and education. And I'll call the latter a kind of emancipation, and it can happen in a lot of environments. But there are many environments in which it cannot happen or is very unlikely to happen. So we do believe in education. But if we look at most of the places where we are schooled, there's precious little of it going on. And what's going on, largely in the unconscious curriculum, is deeply troubling. When you go to school and your faculty is presented to you, the teachers, when they're disproportionately white, or perhaps all white, that can be a problem. That's the school telling you that you don't look like someone who is supposed to know anything. But that's the first message the school tells. There are studies of educators and expectation effects. As you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, it was a crime in most of the slave states to teach slaves how to read or write. And plantation owners often cut off the fingers of slaves that they caught demonstrating their ability to write. So reading and writing were dangerous things. The slaves who could read and write were much more likely than the others to foment rebellions or to run away. So education in black was a problem from the very beginning. Frederick Douglass said, look, you can't make someone a slave unless you first destroy their imagination, unless you turn the lights out, unless you prevent them from seeing anything else as possible. Because Douglass says that happened to him during slavery, but the lights actually turned out. He writes, behold, a man turned into a brute. Well, we see this happening with children through the unexamined curriculum. I've mentioned studies about teacher attitudes and expectations. Often with expectation effects, you see this. You tell teachers, and this is the experiment that the clinical psychologist run. You tell uh, the teachers that students A, B, C, and D are different abilities. Perhaps A and B are better than average, and C and D are worse than average. In fact, you've tested them, and they all seem about the same. But you don't tell the teachers that. You tell them that they're different. When you tell teachers that, they actually will view the ones that you told them were bright, A and B, as brighter than the ones that you told them were subpar, C and D. And they'll grade accordingly. They'll treat them in accordance with that expectation. And they'll often attain results that follow that expectation. So expectations are important. Race does something weird to those expectations. So imagine a classroom, I'll simplify the thing that two uh, clinical psychologists, uh, Rubovitz and Mayer, did back in the 70s. Imagine a classroom with four students. Let's make two of them black and two of them white. All four students are the same. We've tested them. They come out the same on whatever the cognitive analysis is. But we're not going to tell the teachers that. We're going to tell the teachers that two of the students are smart and two of them are average. We'll tell them if there's one white smart one, one black smart one, one white average one, and one black average one. 
how do you guess the teachers rank these students at the end? I'll give the surprising answer. The white student who they were told was the bright student, they view as the bright student and rank him number one. Number two is the white student they were told was average. Now, number three, which one of the black students goes to number three? One would think the one that was described as brighter. You'd think that, only it doesn't work that way with race. So the, the teachers typically will rank the black student they were told was average as number three. And the one they view as last and worst is the black student that came with the label of being bright. So there's something about the appearance of intelligence, the likelihood of academic success in black that causes a reverse hallucination in teachers, making the, our possibilities for integrated classrooms uh, very difficult. There's an unconscious that we have to work through uh, that prevents us from making progress, right? The black student that shows promise in the classroom is also the one uh, most likely to be seen as unpromising, as problematic, to get less eye contact from the teachers, less praise, fewer smiles. Well, you know, you've well, been talking about white cognitive and moral disabilities, but what's that got to do with us still being slaves? Ah, well, if you accept it, right, the moment one says, but we've made so much progress, there's a way in which that is accepting less than your due. That is accepting the discrimination that is taking place. You know, when you look at, let's say, interrogators, like imagine the captured prisoner, the interrogator doesn't try to get the prisoner to confess everything right away. The interrogator has a very specific mission. He wants his prisoner to say something that the prisoner himself believes he shouldn't say. And so he'll start with something very small, right? Because it's much easier to give, get people to give up small things that they think they shouldn't give up than to give up large things. But once you give up the small thing, and this is something all interrogators know, the rest will come tumbling out soon after because your structure of resistance has been weakened. You've given in to something you shouldn't have given in. You made the justification in your mind about why that small thing was okay. And now the rest of it will tumble down. I think getting us to agree to the progress narrative is just like that. Getting us to agree that, well, I accept the present moment because we've made such progress. And I'll call this progress we have made good. I won't call it an outrage that anyone has had to wait for one single second. Once I agree that somehow it's okay for now, for me or for our people to have less, the whole thing tumbles down after that because the structure of your resistance has been compromised. I think that's why they push this progress narrative. That's why everyone pushes it so hard. So we have to be, I think, on guard against these progress narratives. When we think we've made progress, what's happened is that we've been blinded to the ways in which we have not. Look, Flint, Michigan, the kids are still drinking water with lead in it. You know, lead destroys your brain. Lead lodges itself in your bones. If you're a little girl drinking a glass of water tainted with lead right now, that lead which will lodge in your brain will also lodge in your bones. And when you grow up 
and have a child, the lead in your bones will end up in the bones of your child. It's a kind of permanent weapon uh, that used everywhere we find black children in large numbers drinking water in America. It's not just Flint, Michigan. But the fact that it's still Flint, Michigan, lets us know that there's something out there that can't even organize around meeting our basic needs. Well, let's talk about the conduct of political activists. You write the request for equality and freedom, the request for rights, will fail whether that request is granted or denied. Is there any difference between a request and a demand in this context? Yes. Yes, absolutely. A demand means that the person making the demand has retained his or her dignity. That The group making the demand is not compromising. A request requires you to do a funny thing. It requires you to recognize the authority of the person to whom you're directing the request, that you have the right to grant or withhold this. I appeal to your sense of pity or charity or even contempt for my abject situation. I appeal to you. Here I am on bended knee in prayer for relief from something. And that makes you my legitimate master. It means that I have legitimized you in my head and I have compromised something that should never be compromised if I've made the request. The demand is something different. You will comply or else X, Y, Z will happen. There's a funny way that law works in all of this, right? If we imagine that the civil rights story as we ourselves often retell it. It goes this way. There's a situation of radical inequality. We recognize each other because we see there's a common characteristic that we share in this situation of inequality, blackness. It's a one moment, you know, you might be Hosa or Igbo or Nandi, or we could all belong to who knows how many nations, but gathered up in a slave ship, we're something else now. Now we're all chained together and we can recognize in our chains a kind of bond that we now have with each other. We might all be wildly different from each other, have nothing in common, but slavery has made us have a thing in common. Like if blackness is made eligible for slavery, then everyone black is now in the situation of the black, which is a slavery situation. So we now have reason to unite. The civil rights story that we're told is, gosh, we've made all this progress but there's still a little ways to go. So we unite under the flag of race and go to law courts, go to legislatures, go to the uh, chief executives, right? Go to the governor or the president to petition for redress of our grievances. We paint a picture of a beautiful tomorrow, either in legislative terms or in terms of an appellate argument before a court, or in terms of an uh, executive order that could be issued. Hey, if you do this, tomorrow will, will be better for all of us. And then we ask the power to implement this. Now, we are not the power, or we wouldn't have needed to go to the executive, to the legislature, or to the courts. We are hated widely, or we never would have met each other. Right? It's their hatred of us that has caused us to recognize our bonds and to unite as a group to petition for redress of grievances. 
we wouldn't be asking for an end to racism if we weren't all being targeted by racism. But we're not the power. We don't implement this stuff. We've made a request. The power despises us or they'd have acted on their own. So when we make this request, and it's always in the form of some text, right? An executive order, a new law, or a new ruling by the court. It's always going to come in the form of some kind of text. There's no text that interprets and implements itself. People have to read it, interpret it, and implement it. We may have written it, but we're not the ones charged with interpreting or implementing it because we're not the power. They are. When they read it, they're going to look to the inevitable gaps, conflicts, and ambiguities of that text. And when they look at it that way, they're looking at it through the light of their own experience, of their own ideas of what's normal, of what's normative, of how things should be. And they will read those gaps, conflicts, and ambiguities against us. So we will end up being right back where we started, because the way they implement it and interpret it isn't the way we would have. Um, our win is going to be turned into going right back where we started, right back to the beginning, which is what we've seen uh, in the civil rights era. When all these big victories, and yet here we are. Schools are, for example, just as segregated as they were back in the day. Even when they're integrated, you find them segregated at individual level, classroom by classroom, or by classrooms actually being separated into quote-unquote ability group tracking. So lawsuits, all lawsuits then, are requests, and as such will always fail to get the desired result. They may get the desired result for a moment, right? So I don't want to say that one shouldn't bring some of these suits because I've supported them and I've you know, signed amicus briefs and things like that. So I don't want to condemn all of those efforts, but I want us to understand the limits of that approach, that these efforts are going to be temporary relief at best. The system will make its adjustments and take us right back where we started so long as what we're doing is limited to the request so long as we're viewing the system as legitimate. But the arena of demands is different. The arena of demands is, is uh, different, right? The demand should be an or else, that we need to keep in our mind that there is nothing legitimate about any system that places us on the bottom. Think how casually we accept racism. We think it's democracy when a racist, sexist, xenophobe, or homophobe gets elected. It's not democracy. If you say build a wall or ban Muslims or grab them by the you know what, and you get elected, there's nothing legitimate about your election. And your election is not democracy. Your election reveals that your democracy is lying to you about being a democracy. That person should be out of office just because of what they said. You shouldn't even need anything more than this man said build a wall. He's not the president. Everything he does after the swearing-in is regarded as not being the president. That attitude can help us to not eliminate liberation possibilities from the very beginning, you know, before reviewing them. A lot of the way power works is by foreclosing certain options, the things we don't even think of, the things we casually and perhaps unconsciously accept. So I bring out that example of democracy there's something wrong with the way we regard the democracy that we are supposedly in. 
where we can say, oh, someone is conservative and not think that their conservatism is then a disqualifier for their having anything to say to anyone in a democracy, at least in this democracy. What in American history would anyone devoted to democracy ever want to conserve? Before 1967, which isn't that long ago, it's a year I remember, it was a crime in 16 states for Barack Obama's parents to get married. And the Supreme Court approved of that situation until 1967. So before 1967, our highest court um, approved of the doctrine of white supremacy. So if we're going to go conservative, typically want to take us back before 1967. We should refuse to go back. And when we listen to their arguments, take them seriously, have ideas that we should debate with them, thereby legitimizing their position in the debate, we make a whole series of unconscionable surrenders in our own mind that weaken our own structure, our own ability to resist gets weakened, gets compromised. I realize that I may have sounded pessimistic, and some people have referred to my work as Afro-pessimism, but I am filled with optimism. I think anything is possible. I think that if we start asking the first-order questions, why do we have prisons? Why is education through graduate school, not free and available for everyone. If we can spend up to $100,000 a year to keep juveniles in prison, then why can't we use that same money for the best possible schools for them? Why isn't healthcare free and available to everyone? Why doesn't everyone have a right to a job? Martin Luther King died for that idea in his anti-poverty campaign of 67 through 68. Everyone, he said, should have a job and everyone should have a decent income whether or not they are willing or able to work. These things should be easy for us, not hard. Healthcare for all, a decent income for all, a right to housing, a right to education. Why do we have borders? Who is that helping? Like, Why not open those borders? Frederick Douglass said it was for open borders. He said, look, a right to keep people out is a right to tell people they should go. And so we should be a cosmopolitan society that welcomes everyone. So I guess I have all kinds of optimism. I think that when we work through the things that we've unconsciously and unconscionably accepted, we can find our way to something marvelous and much better. That was Professor Anthony Farley speaking from Boston. New Mexico is among the least black states in the country. But Dr. Natasha Howard, a lecturer on Africana studies at the University of New Mexico, says the reason blacks are scarce is because the state was for a long time very hostile to any black presence. Dr. Howard wrote an article that focused on a mural displayed at the university, celebrating Anglo whites, Latinos, Latinas, and indigenous people but leaving out Black New Mexicans entirely. The mural that I referred to in the article was actually commissioned in the 1930s. It was created by an artist by the name of Kenneth Adams in 1939. That particular mural has been in our campus, the University of New Mexico's main campus library, since that point in time. And it created a lot of controversy because of the depictions of the three groups that are supposedly 
the most important contributors to the history of New Mexico, that being Anglo, Hispanic, and Native American. And New Mexico has often been referred to as a tricultural state, and there has been a lot of sort of confrontation with that, and what does that mean specifically for black bodies in this space? What does it mean for black people? particularly when you think about the fact that blacks also have a long history in this state, even though we are slightly less than 3% of the population. And certainly there has been a long history of a fear of blackness in this, in this space. And that included a number of ways that blacks were sort of forbidden from trespassing within the state of New Mexico for many decades. And once they were here, they were sort of confined and contained to particular spaces throughout the state. When they speak of triculturalism and three cultures, they're not talking about black people being part of that, but of whites, who are called Anglos, and Latinos, and Native Americans, but not blacks. Exactly, precisely. So blacks are not a part of the tricultural myth. And it's not just that it's present within like murals, but it's present within sort of, it's embodied within the space, if that makes any sense, in terms of practices that have happened throughout the state, in terms of how the identity is marketed, how it has been marketed over a long period of time. And so it does not include visual images of Blacks or Blacks are not written into the history in a way that's public. So it's not just one mural, but it's a lot of different art spaces and within the literature and the history of the state does not include the visibility of Blacks or African Americans. But despite the absence of Blacks from that particular mural and from the literature and the history, the threat of Blackness screams out at those who understand the history of the place. Exactly. So we see this most specifically in the ways in which anti-Blackness was codified into the law. So while even when Blacks were 2% or less of the population, there have always been laws that confine Blacks. So we, we start off with New Mexico had its own Black code, which prevented Black people from trespassing or traveling through the space. They could not be here for longer than 30 days unless they were with a master or a slave owner. They could not marry or have relationships with whites, with Anglos or Hispanics for that matter, because New Mexico also has had a long history of a Hispanic class that had some political power here. And also, Blacks were not allowed to own property throughout the state, but a lot of my research has been focusing on Albuquerque. So we had the creation of anti-Black housing laws where neighborhoods were racially restricted. It was written into the covenant of the neighborhoods, and they expanded from the central part of the city all the way out. And at this point, I've counted 40 neighborhoods, and 38 of them had anti-Black housing codes written into their covenant. And in many cases, these covenants, this language still remains in the covenant even today. 
Many of us understand that in New Mexico, you have a long-standing Mexican-American population, people who have lived there for many, many generations, and who essentially think of themselves as white and are very concerned that they be thought of as white. Yes. So one of the interesting things about New Mexico is that you have a Hispano or Hispanic population that identifies as being descendants of the Spanish conquistadores who colonized this area prior to Anglo settler happening, settlerism happening here in the state. So that population in many ways identifies with being the other white, right? So not Anglo, but still a white population. And this makes the the relationship and the, the history a little bit unique in that you have a claim to whiteness from two different groups, Anglo and those who are of Spanish descent. One of the things that I think that's particularly interesting is the way there's an anti-blackness that also appears, or these boundaries between black and non-black that appear within different populations here in New Mexico. And so I've been very interested in, in negotiating what these boundaries have meant for black people. So it's not just that it's a black and white or a Anglo and African-American confrontation or a binary, but also anti-blackness arises within thinking about Latin American politics and how that has been influenced within New Mexico. It arises within relationships between Spanish and people of African descent, as well as within indigenous populations and how they sort of perceive themselves in contrast to Black people. Yes, and this must cause problems in using the almost standard these days types of solidarity with POCs, people of color, and including all Spanish surname people as being part of that. Exactly. I mean, there's this assumption that people of color are naturally allied together. And that just simply isn't true. And this plays out very specifically in New Mexico, where it's kind of, you know, tricky to use the term POC, because there's an assumption that there aren't any hierarchical relations between people of color. And indeed, we find that there are. So I am someone who is very cautious about using terms like POC, you know, as an assumption about a natural alliance between people anti-blackness and boundaries between black and non-black exist within the larger idea of what it means to be a community of color. So while New Mexico is a majority minority state or has been recognized as such, there's also a minority within a minority, and that would be a place where African-Americans, where black people exist. And I should also point out that it doesn't just include African-Americans. Um, we can think about how these sort of anti-Black politics also impact upon people who identify as Black Chicano, people who identify as Black Native. So it also interrupts or challenges the position of Afro-Latinx populations here as well. Yes, I was fascinated to read in your piece about how Mexican elites back in slavery time, some of them were 
favoring the introduction of slavery into New Mexico because it might elevate their status within the Union. That particular argument comes up a lot in work that looks at what was happening in New Mexico just prior to statehood. So one of the issues, Mexican elites were also, in some instances, intermarried with other Anglo elites. And what happened as a result of that was that there was a question of whether or not New Mexico would become a state but enter as a slaveholding state. And in fact, there were a couple of years when slavery was actually considered legal in New Mexico. It never developed as a slave state for a number of different reasons, but the economy wasn't quite there for creating a slave state. And when they did use slaves, they also used Native Americans to provide that labor. But there was the possibility of introducing Blacks into the territory as a way of securing the white position of Mexicans who were here in the territory. And that piece was introduced by a group of Mexican elites who were part of the political structure here in New Mexico. And they thought that that would sort of secure a white position for Spanish-speaking people because it would create an absolute bottom, like an absolute, and blacks would be that absolute bottom. And this is um, present in the work of Laura Gomez has a piece, a book out called Manifest Destinies, and she talks a bit about that. Yes, and without blacks, Native Americans would be the absolute bottom. And it is important to emphasize that regions of this country, Native Americans were systematically enslaved. Yes, they were. In New Mexico, Native Americans were enslaved prior to the ideology or idea of blacks being the absolute bottom. You would have had a Native American bottom, and they were used as slaves within the state of New Mexico. Now, when you talk about the threat of blackness in places where blacks are not numerically in great numbers, you're speaking of something in the white imagination. Yes. The idea of blacks being uh, at the very bottom, right, the binary between black and white, has always existed in the United States. My interest is in how other communities of color have had to negotiate that and how they've used that as a way of positioning themselves outside of blackness and so creating sort of a middle ground for them. And so even when blacks have been relatively few, oftentimes we're accustomed to looking at black people in places in the South where you see large numbers. But even in a place, you know, that's one of the things that was really interesting to me or has been interesting to me about New Mexico is that We've never been more than maybe two and a half percent of the population, but there is an assurance by everyone else that even though we've been a small number, there's been a consistent interest in thinking about how are Blacks, there's a threat of Black people being here, and Black people represent something particular within white imagination, with the Anglo imagination about pathology, about contagion, ideas about deviance. Those things come up in relationship from black to white, right? So the opposite of white has always been black. And I'm concerned with how has that been used 
right, in New Mexico to create an idea about blackness that is related to other groups or other communities of color. Yes, and New Mexico then is marketing itself, and I think that's probably the right word, as a place that is full of white space or spaces that don't have black folks in it and therefore is a superior place, an enchanting place. Yes, so the name for New Mexico was the land of enchantment, right? And it started coming billed that way many decades ago. And so what part of the thing that makes it enchanting, I think, is the mythology that there, this is a place where race does not become an issue because we've sort of taken care of our black problem, unlike other places in the South or in the East or the West. In fact, you will oftentimes hear that race is not a problem here, but that has been a problem in the South, in the Southern part of the United States. And so... What I'm arguing is that this creation of this idea of New Mexico as a land of enchantment really has to do with how it's controlled and contained its supposed black problem. It's done a better job, supposedly, than other parts in the country. And New Mexico has been marketed as a tourist place beginning as early as the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s for sure, as a place where you come and you don't have to deal with racial problems. Cultures here are part of what is present, but those cultures are for the enjoyment of white people. White people can enjoy Native American culture. They can enjoy Spanish rituals and traditions, but they don't have to deal with black people. And that's what's made it an enchanting place to be a tourist and potentially an enchanting place to live. Well, now the University of New Mexico does have to deal with a Black Studies department of which you are a part. Yes, I have been teaching in Africana Studies or Black Studies since 2012. And prior to that, um, I worked for the program back in the 90s, right, which is when I first started doing research on Black history in New Mexico. There's been an Africana Studies program at University of New Mexico for 50 years. In fact, we celebrated our 50th year this year. But it has always been somewhat on the periphery. And by that, I mean that it is still, after 50 years, seeking department status. It is still contained as a program and not as a department. It is still working to be recognized as a legitimate department at the university. And it hasn't been just the story of Black studies at the University of New Mexico. It's been the story of Black studies throughout the state, whether that be New Mexico State University or New Mexico Highlands University. There's always been a struggle over where does Black studies fit within what is a cultural paradigm about people of color here in the state. And it doesn't fit because it's not within the tricultural identity of the state. 
And it is striking that this tricultural identity excludes blacks, claims that blacks are not a cultural group, but I bet all those white kids and Latino kids and Native American kids are all into hip-hop and all kinds of other black cultural products. And they're also the ones who take black studies courses, right? So I think there's the idea that black studies is really just about self-esteem work for black students. And if we don't have a lot of black people, then why would anyone really be interested in studying black studies? So, you know, I've argued that black studies is not solely a project about affirmation of cultural identity of African-Americans or people of African descent. While it certainly does that, it's also a program that is about understanding the centralness or how race is situated within the United States and globally, right? Because our program is a global program. And so you can't really understand race, particularly in the U.S., even in New Mexico, without understanding how black people have been positioned within this country and how other groups of people of color have had to negotiate their identity and their place in society around what it means to be black or, around, or in juxtaposition to blackness. So there are a number of kids and adults, right, who take courses in Africana studies because they want to understand the implications of race and they want to understand how race affects every aspect of our society. And so I always encourage students, whether you're a Black Studies major or not, whether you're an African Studies major or not, think about where race comes into play when whatever field you're in, and you will find out that it is certainly important. At present, I'm doing research on black geographies in New Mexico. And I use the term geographies in plural because there are a number of ways in which blacks have created a place for themselves and for black community building here in the state. And that goes from the northern part of the state all the way to the southern part of the state. And so in particular, I'm looking at how have black communities survived? How did they create thriving communities? and how they created communities that were based on a network of care, and that these care networks extended throughout the entire state. So um, a lot of people don't know that New Mexico has one of the oldest chapters of the NAACP. So um, I believe the first chapter was started somewhere around 1914, and New Mexico had a chapter a couple of years beyond that. It has one of the oldest chapters, and it's because black people here, from a very early point, right, just after statehood, saw the need to create a community where they could challenge anti-blackness. And so some of the work is recovering and looking through the archives to think about where have we lost voices of African-American people here, and how can I then put those voices out there and have them speak about, you know, what their lives have been like or what their life was like here in New Mexico and what um, community building was like. And so I'm looking at both urban communities and rural communities and thinking about them as places, black fugitive sites, places where black people 
went to, but that they built a life refusing to be determined from the outside. And so that's the work that I'm currently doing and thinking about how can we write Black people back into the geography of New Mexico. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.